Um, wish your neighbor peace and have a seat, and we'll continue with the worship service. All right, I'm going to stand right here. Today's um, sermon is on the crucifixion from the book of Mark, and it will be based on these verses from Mark 15. And they crucified him, dividing up his clothes. They cast lots to see what each would get. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, who, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, Come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion, who stood there in front of Jesus, saw how he died, he said, Surely this man was the Son of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Gary. We've been working our way through the Gospel of Mark, and as we approach Easter and the celebration of Christ's resurrection, the the great event at the very center of Christianity, We've been following uh, Mark's account. Mark uh, is one of four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that begin the New Testament. And the Gospel of Mark is based on Peter's experience of being Jesus' disciple. And the language and the style of Mark matches that of Peter. Peter was an illiterate fisherman. He was not a great thinker. He was a doer. And his account is very vivid, very direct. It is the simplest language in the New Testament. And he recounts exactly what he saw. Jesus did this, and then he said this, and then he did this. It's a very linear, very direct, very vivid account. And we get here uh, to the culmination, what happened at the cross. I'm actually just going to talk about the first part, the uh, the second part, of this passage I'll talk about next Sunday, and then we will move into Easter. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. If you recall, Jesus was betrayed by Judas the night before in the Garden of Gethsemane. He was arrested. He was taken to the high priest, condemned by the priest and all the leaders of Jerusalem. 
uh, for blasphemy, for claiming to be the Messiah. They take him to Pilate, who was the Roman administrator of Judea. It was the law of the time that only Romans could execute people. And so they came up with a charge to give to the Romans. This man, Jesus, claims to be the king of the Jews. Pilate condemns him, hands him over to the soldiers, who, as we saw last week, scourge him, that is, uh, basically whip his skin off, uh, tie him to a, a beam, march him outside of Jerusalem, and, and there they crucify him. And so it is nine in the morning. This is the morning after Jesus' arrest. They crucified him. Peter reports this without drama or gloss. Simply, they crucified him. But a Roman crucifixion was a macabre public spectacle. It was all about pain, about suffering. It was about horror and human degradation. The purpose of a public crucifixion was to terrify, to intimidate and instill fear in the enemies of Rome, to make sure nobody else thought about challenging Roman power. And how did they do that? Well, Jesus would have carried the crossbeam, uh, a large piece of wood, uh, probably initially tied to it, but uh, we saw that uh, he collapsed after his uh, scourging and he had to be helped. He would have carried that outside the walls of Jerusalem to the place of crucifixion. There, his arms would have been nailed to that cross piece, uh, not through the hands as you often see. Uh, hands cannot hold a, the weight of a human body. He would have been nailed through the forearms between the two bones that make up the forearm uh, because they can carry the weight. He would, his arms would have been spread. He would be nailed with iron nails. The cross piece would then be lifted up onto a stake, which was already in the ground. Oftentimes, these stakes were not that tall, but we know that Jesus was much higher. Uh, we saw how, uh, we will see how, when they try to give him vinegar, they have to put it up on a staff. So Jesus was made a particular spectacle. The uh, stake on which he was lifted was much higher than most. He would have been visible to everyone. The cross piece would have been fixed to that stake, and then his feet would have been tied to the pole and a single iron nail hammered through the heel bones of the two feet overlapping each other to fix the feet to the upright. We don't have to speculate about this because in 1968, some uh, archaeologists in Israel found the tomb of a crucified man. The Romans crucified a lot of people because there was a lot of rebellion, a lot of zealots in Israel. And they published the findings in 1970, and they write this. The feet were joined, almost parallel, both transfixed by the same nail at the heels, with the legs adjacent the knees were doubled, the right one overlapping the left. The trunk was contorted, the upper limbs stretched out, each stabbed by a nail in the forearm. And then the victim, in this case Jesus, hung there, a public spectacle, until his death. Verse 26. 
The written notice of the charge against him read, The king of the Jews. King of the Jews. This, as I said, was the charge that was brought against him. The Romans didn't care about uh, Jewish theological squabbles. They didn't care about the claim that Jesus was a Messiah or a miracle worker. All they cared about as an occupying force in Judea was rebellion and rebellious leaders. And so anybody or, or any group that threatened their puppet king Herod, who was the Roman installed king of Israel, Anything that threatened that was a problem to them. That's why Jesus was tried. The written notice of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. The written notice, it's a a detail that a casual reader just skips over. But Rome prided itself on being uh, on its law, on Roman law. And Roman judicial crucifixions, executions, always included the charges. Typically, a piece of wood whitened with chalk with a charge written across it. And the fact that the gospel accounts of Jesus' crucifixion describe this written notice, describe the trial before Pilate, the scourging, the death by uh, crucifixion, all in accord with Roman custom and the records we have of how Romans behaved, convinces even secular historians that this is actually an eyewitness account, that the Gospels record what actually happened. As one uh, historian put it, that Jesus died by crucifixion and that his cross bore an inscription stating the cause for which he had been sentenced is the one solid and stable fact that should be the starting point of any historical investigation dealing with the gospel accounts of his trial. This really happened, and the gospels can be trusted on describing what happened. Verse 27. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. Two rebels, these would have been transgressors against Roman law. And this is exactly what scripture predicts. Isaiah, 500 years before this event, describes what's going to happen to the Messiah. Isaiah 53. And included in that description, you should read it, you oftentimes hear it read out at Christmas, is this. He, the Messiah was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. The transgressors were around him, not just jeering at him, but right there on crosses, nailed like he was. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. Hurled insults at him. This is fulfillment of prophecy that was written a thousand years before Jesus. David wrote Psalm 22, which once again describes what's going to happen to the Messiah. And in it, we read this. I am, it's the Messiah talking, I am scorned by everyone, 
despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults at me and shake their heads. <coughs> the gospel accounts, our eyewitness accounts, they also are in accord with the rest of Scripture. They show that Jesus truly was the Messiah, and he was the fulfillment of everything the Bible says about the Messiah. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. He saved others. We saw as we went through Mark that that is exactly what Jesus did. Jesus healed. Jesus does save. It's one of the sick ironies of the cross that the one who is the healer, the one who saves, is the one now wounded, the one who is dying. And they're mocking that this is the Messiah, this is the King of Israel. They see a broken, humiliated, powerless man in the grip of Roman brutality. They don't see glory. They don't see power. They don't see anything to admire. But of course, it is the fact that he is going to the cross that demonstrates that he is the true king, that he is the Messiah. And when he is resurrected, as we'll talk about at Easter, many will see and many will believe, including many priests in the early church Many people, particularly priests, became Christians because they saw how the Christian church took care of others. And in fact, the Christian church, those who see and believe, will be Jesus' legacy. The Christian church is comprised of believers. So I'm going to end it there. We're going to look at the rest of the passage next Sunday. Apart from the fact, as described, of Jesus' death and through crucifixion, what has this got to do with us? How should we think about it? How does it affect our life right here in Hoboken? Well, think about this question. Why did Jesus die on the cross? To make you and me holy. What does holy mean? Holy means, literally, to set apart. To set apart for God's purpose. To create people in this world who are not going about the business of the world, but are going about the business of God, about advancing God's kingdom, creating a space in the world and a people in the world devoted to God. That's why he went to the cross. Jesus Christ died to make you and me holy. Now you need to unpack that concept to make sense of what it means personally. This book is not a collection of facts. It is a story. It is a great narrative over thousands of years. And it is the story, the drama of God's relationship 
with his people. It begins in the Garden of Eden in Genesis. And it's a beautiful place where it talks about God and human beings being together. God walked in the Garden of Eden in the cool of the morning with Adam and Eve. You can think of the relationship of God and Adam and Eve, God and humanity, as this intimate connection. God and humanity joined together in relationship with each other. But then there's a rebellion. That perfect union is broken. The technical word for that is Adam and Eve sinned. What does sin mean? Sin is a term taken from archery. It means to miss the mark, not to hit the target. It means that you are no longer aimed at God. You are no longer devoted to God and God's purposes. You find your meaning, your purpose, your aim in other things other than God. You lose track of him and go your own way. That perfect relationship between God and humanity is broken, no longer connected. So what does God do? God takes a man of faith, Abraham, and through him creates a holy people. The world turned away from God. Every human heart went their own way, and God creates a people who are now devoted to him again whose aim in life is God, who are set apart, who are made holy, and are once again in relationship with him. And at the very center of that holy people is the temple. You can think of the temple and the holy of holies, the place where God, the divine, heaven, and earth meet. That's why it's holy, set apart for God but it becomes corrupted. And so Jesus comes along. If you read the Gospels, you know that the only time that Jesus really got upset was when he went to the temple and he saw that it had been turned into a marketplace. God's free presence had been turned into a commodity. Stop turning my father's house into a market. The Jews then responded to him, What sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? To do all this, remember, he, he whipped people, he turned over tables, he drove people out of the temple courts. What sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. This was one of the charges against Jesus, that he claimed that he was going to destroy the temple. He did not. What he said was, if this temple is destroyed, my body, the new temple, will be raised. Jesus became the new temple, the new meeting place between God and man, heaven and earth, the new holy point. 
That's why he came. Jesus Christ, the body that he brought in the world, the body that goes to the cross, is the new temple. So what does that mean? Well, think about this table right here. What is on the table? The body of Christ. Why? Because this is the family table of the Christian church. Jesus did many things, but one of the main things he did was create a holy people, the Christian church, a space in the world and a people in the world devoted to him, aiming at him, all about him. And the death of his body on that cross is the reason that we go to the table every Sunday, to receive the body that he brought into the world. A body uncontaminated by sin, in relationship with God, devoted to him, holy. Peter puts it this way. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God, and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual temple to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. Peter is talking about the Christian church. Paul puts it this way. Don't you know that you yourself are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? God's temple is sacred, and you together are that temple. Sacred is another word for holy. Why did Christ die on the cross? Why was his body put to death? So that sin, that is everything that doesn't aim at God, would die, and what remains would be holy. And that is the basis for the Christian church. You and I are the body of Christ, the Christian church, God's new holy temple, the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit, the meeting place of heaven and earth right here. That's what it means. So how are you doing, holy people? Do you wake up? every Monday morning filled with vim and vigor for God and his purposes? Do you pray, not my will, but thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven? Do you devote all your energies and your waking hours to advancing God's kingdom rather than your own? Because that's what holy people do. That is the challenge of the Christian church. That is the reason for holy people. So what's the problem? The problem is that though on the cross Jesus put sin to death, you know, he became sin and he put sin to death when he died, in our lives that sin remains. 
Sin are all the patterns and habits of our life that are about God, that are not about God, that are about us. It's all the time and energy we put into chasing things other than God. The relationships that deny him, the speech and patterns that deny him. They've been, the power has been put to death, but the patterns and the habits and the mindset remains. And that's why Christianity is a process. Why don't we just puff out of existence when we become Christians and go straight to heaven? Because though we've been made right with God through the cross, we are still filled with the old habits, the old ways of life that were condemned in the Garden of Eden and that have been condemned throughout history. We are holy in God's eyes, but we know in our own eyes there is still much about us that is ungodly. And it affects the way we behave. It affects what we do. In fact, what it does is it bogs us down in the world. It makes us unhappy. It makes us miserable. It makes us lonely and alienated. For some of you, the reason that you don't bounce out of bed on Monday mornings filled with glory to the Lord is because life is hard. Maybe you feel hopeless. Maybe some of you are filled with despair. Your dream job, your move to New York, which you were thrilled to be offered, has turned into a grind. Or worse, it crushes your joy and fills you with dread on Monday mornings. You carry secrets, things that you don't share with those that you love, things that you don't share unless you are revealed and become unlovable. You have bills you can't pay, investments that have turned into losses, friendships that you have lost or betrayed or don't care to continue. Your exciting life that started out filled with such achievement and promise has turned into mediocrity or a sense of failure. Or perhaps you're just stressed and you can't sleep. You're filled with anxiety and fear because of all the responsibilities in your life, and you lay awake at night looking at the ceiling, not knowing how to relax, where to go, what to do. How can you bridge the huge gulf between this identity as God's forgiven, beloved, holy people, this high flutin theology, and the daily grind of life? How do you bridge that gap? Why did Jesus go to the cross? To make you holy. The solution is to look to him. Remember what Peter said. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual temple. It's a process. We, you, I, we are a work in progress. 
The technical theological word for this is sanctification, the process of being made holy, the process of learning to live in relationship with God. So I have a challenge for you, and it's linked to what I said earlier about prayer this Easter. There's an ancient tradition in Christianity that at Easter, in the preparation for Easter, you give something up. It's called Lent. And the idea is you repent, you turn away from something in your life that is not holy, that doesn't honor God, that steals your joy. And then after Easter, you know, uh, Lent is the preparation running up to Easter. After Easter, as you prepare for the ascension, Jesus ascends 40 days after Easter. That's when you put something new back into your life, new life, new beginnings, new relationship with God. Well, I suggest putting those two ideas together. Lent repentance is like gardening. You pull weeds out of your garden. You pull what is ugly, what is dying or dead, what is not wholesome. You pull it out by the roots and give it up. But you don't just leave barren earth in your garden because weeds are going to come back to it. What do you do? When you give something up, you plant something new in the space that has been created. Lent is freeing up space in your life. Preparation for ascension is planting something new. Try doing both. And that's what we're going to try to do during Easter week. We're going to try fasting. We're going to discuss all the different things it's possible to fast from. But the idea is to give up something. Give up something that you do during the day and in its place put the relationship with God. Put prayer. Put worship. Start something new. Do something that is going to open up new possibilities. Something wholesome. Something outgoing. Something that is about you giving rather than receiving. Create a space for God to do something new in your life. Maybe something that will give you the glimpse of new possibilities, a new way of living, a new pattern, a new habit, a new way of relating to people. That's the idea. We're not going to become holy. That means all of our life is not going to be holy, become holy in one go. Start small. Start with something that you know how to give up, that you can give up just for a week. Create a new space devoted to God and see what grows. The promise of the cross is that Christ put to death your sin. Therefore, it no longer has power over you. It is dead. If you pull it up and replace it with something new, that new thing will be filled with life. And more and more of your life will be devoted to God. That is the Christian life. Repenting, turning away from that which is dead and unwholesome, 
and turning back to God and making more of your life about him. The body of Christ. Jesus makes an astonishing claim that the real spiritual food that we need to grow this new life is actually him. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in him. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your forefathers ate manna and died, but he who feeds on this bread will live forever. Maybe you've tried giving things up before and it hasn't worked. Maybe you've tried to turn your life around and it hasn't worked. Stop doing it under your own strength. Christ is the one that puts your sin to death, so turn to him. And when we come to the table, we're going to do that next, as you receive the gifts, the body and the blood, I want you to let go of something and ask Christ to put it to death. And then eat and drink and receive his new life, his power, his energy, his will, his purpose. Make an exchange. Turn away from what is unwholesome, unholy, and turn to what is good, what is alive, what has a future. That's the Christian life. That is the significance in our life today of Christ's death on the cross. He's put to death the things that we can't handle so that we can have a new life without them. I encourage you to try that. And think about joining us. There's a group of us who are going to do this uh, prayer and fasting during Easter week. Think about joining us. If you haven't tried it before, it's a great way to start. A group of us will be doing it together to encourage each other. So talk to me afterwards if you are interested, and you'll hear more about that in the future. By the way, I just heard a suggestion this morning that every time that happens, we should say hallelujah because everything in this world is under God's lordship. Anyway, let me pray now and think about what I've said. We're going to receive an offering right now, which is a chance as we continue in worship to support this church and its ministries. Don't feel obliged to give. Think about what you've heard. Think about coming to the table.